Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service. On the podcast today, we have Mike Moyer. Mike, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It is my pleasure. Would you like to take a moment and tell the audience a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. My name is Mike Moyer. I uh, have a number of different businesses, a technology company and a camping gear company. I uh, teach uh, at Northwestern University. I teach entrepreneurship and um, entrepreneurial marketing and sales. And I write books and I do consulting. And I do a bunch of different things like that. And I live in uh, north of Chicago in a town called Lake Forest. Thank you for the introduction. I said before we started recording, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, yeah. But your um, the kind of title, if you like, of what your job is or what your preference is, is Startup Equity Split Master. So it's not actually something that I have come across frequently. So would you like to go into what that is? Yeah, then the biggest part, I guess what I'm most sort of well known for or, or enjoy the most is equity splits in startup companies. You know, all entrepreneurs that start companies that have partners struggle with this concept of how to split equity. And traditionally, it's based on guesses about future events. So you and I go into business together. We'd say, what, what are we going to do? What's, what's our projections? What are we each going to contribute? How much are we going to be worth? We guess the future. And we decide an equity split based on that. And because no one can tell the future, everyone's always wrong with this calculation. Um, but I can tell you exact down to the penny how much, each equity, how much equity each person deserves based on a model that I developed about 10 years ago called slicing pie, which is what I believe the only fair way to split equity on the planet. So I said it's, you can split things fairly or you can split them in, you can split them in slicing pie or you can split them unfairly. So. Uh, that's what I do a lot of most of my time doing is helping student, students and, and, and entrepreneurs split their equity in their, their startup company. Is that always at the company's creation stage? Uh, it's during the bootstrap stage. So during kind of inception to series A or break even. After series A or break even, you can set a value for your shares. So your stock has value. Before that, it's worth zero. So it's impossible to divide up zero. So I can give you a thousand shares and give myself a hundred thousand shares. And we've given each other this exact same value because it's worth zero. So there's no way to tell how much equity we should each get because it's worth zero. After break even or series A, after the bootstrapping stage, we can tell how much shares are worth. So what's important in the bootstrapping stage is not the absolute value of the shares, but the relative value of the shares. And you said that um, it's frequently or perhaps always incorrect. Um, how close is it to being fair, if you will, quote unquote? Mostly never. The best way to understand it is through the analogy of a game of blackjack. Do you know how to play blackjack? Yes. So let's pretend that you and I are going to play blackjack as a team, not as opponents, but we're going to play together as a team. And we're going to split the winnings 50-50 because we're friends. So we go to the table. And we each put a dollar on the same hand of blackjack or a pound if you want. And we don't know if we're going to win. We don't know how much we're going to win. We don't know how long it's going to take to win. The future is unknown. We cannot predict the future. We're optimistic. We're confident. We're excited. We don't know the future. So the dealer deals two aces. So we're going to split the aces and double down. Is that cool? I think that's um, a regular practice, isn't good, it? Good move. Yep. So... I'm out of money and you're not. So you put two more dollars down. So now you've bet $3 and I've only bet a dollar. The future is still unknowable. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, if we're going to win or how much we're going to win. 
or how long it's going to take to win. What we know for certain, though, is that you bet $3 and I bet $1. If we win, does the original 50-50 split sound fair? I suppose, I mean, taking it back over, using that analogy, I suppose once the winnings were distributed out, then that person would get their stake back. And then after that, they'd split the profit. Would that be? No, because if you're putting your stake at risk, you're betting. You bet three times as much as I did. So you should get 75% of that bet and I should get 25% of that bet. Your share of the winnings should reflect your share of the bets. Imagine if you put $10 million in and I put a dollar in. Would you give your $10 million back and my dollar back and then you split the profits after that? After that that, that sounds fair. fairly un, unfair, as you say. But, um, one, one thing that's important to keep in mind about business, that's unlike any other part of our lives, it's you know, politics and religion and, and criminal justice, business is quantifiable. We can count the inputs for business down to the exact penny. Uh, nothing else is like that. So every business in the world buys stuff and sells stuff. So you don't run a business, right? I do, yeah. Do you pay your bills? Indeed, yeah. Do you know how much your bills are? Uh, down to the penny. Down to the penny. So what's the last thing you, what's, what's the last bill you paid? Um, <laughs> you're looking at them actually, because uh, I needed a pair of headphones for this interview. So I bought them. Got it. So you shop for those headphones. You looked for the pair that you wanted. You shopped around for pricing and you made a decision and bought it. You paid the fair market value for that contribution, for that, that, that those headphones, right? So if you contribute those to our startup company and I wasn't, you weren't reimbursed for them, then your bet is equal to the fair market value, the price you paid for those headphones. It's not magically worth more than that. It's not worth less than that. Every time you contribute to a startup company, whether it be our time, our money, our resources, our supplies, our equipment, our relationships, whenever we contribute and we're not paid for our time or paid for our ideas or paid for our expenses, we are essentially betting the fair market value of that contribution on the future outcome of the company. So always your share of the winnings should be based on your share of the bets. If we don't do that, then your share of the winnings is not based on your share of the bets. That means you can bet more than I can and I'll get more than you, you get out of that bet. That's not fair. Everyone understands rationally and logically that your share of the winnings should be based on your share of the bets. Just like in blackjack, it's not a very ambiguous solution. Now I could add my narrative on top of that. I could say, oh, but I'm a professional jack blackjack player, so I should be paid more. Well, if you're a professional jack blackjack player, how much are you worth to do consulting? There's a price for that. Everything has a price. And so just simply knowing those and keeping track of them gives you the perfect we spend every single time. I was about to ask you something which you just um kind of answered but it would be good to get uh, your thoughts in addition to this and coming back to your blackjack analogy um where one person puts down three dollars and one pers puts, person puts down one dollar if it were the case that the person who put down one dollar spent for example twice as much time at the table in order to get that return back would you is that something quantifiable because and the reason i asked that is that often I hear with joint ventures, quote unquote, that if you have a partner with money, then the person who is a partner without money is expected to put more time, effort in. And so I, I'm interested to know how you quantify that. Good question. Everything is quantifiable. So your time is quantifiable in terms of dollars and cents. And that would translate into what salary you would be paid for the same work at a company we could afford to pay you. 
So if I'm worth $100,000 a year and you don't pay me $100,000 a year, I'm in effect betting the fair market value of my salary, $100,000 in unpaid salary. If you are putting cash in and that cash is consumed by the company, not invested, but when it's consumed, your bet equals the consumed amount. So what I mean by that is if you put $100,000 in the bank, it's not really a bet because it's just sitting in somebody else's bank account. You can get it back if you wanted. If you spend the money, it's a bet. And so you, all you got to do is keep track of what your bets are in terms of cash and non-cash. Non-cash doesn't require cash out of pocket. So your things like time and ideas and relationships and used equipment, things like that, things that don't require cash out of pocket. Cash contributions are things that do require cash out of pocket. So if I buy this mouse for the co company, and I spend 10 bucks on it. I'm betting $10 on the future outcome of the company. If you buy internet service, I'm, I pay for that out of my pocket and I'm not reimbursed. It's a cash contribution. So, so cash contributions are a little different value-wise than non-cash because it's, cash is more scarce and it's, it's taxed differently. So for instance, if I wanted to uh, buy this thing for 10 bucks and I worked for you for $10 an hour, I would have to work more than an hour to earn enough money because when you paid me, you'd pay employment taxes. When I received the money, I'd pay income taxes. When I bought the thing, I'd pay sales tax. So I might have to work two hours to earn enough money. So we put a higher weight on cash. But all things can be tracked and all things can be monitored and all things can be negotiated in terms of fair market value. Um, it's impossible to not know fair market value because everything can be bought and sold. If you can't find someone to buy your idea, for instance, then it's either worthless or it's priceless. Either way, it's not a good deal for a startup company. I can see how um, people would need your help with this in order to get it right given the fact that you have expertise. And um, even in our conversation for the first 10 minutes, I can see how you might perhaps pull your hair out listening to the way that equity is split among startups. You know, it's, I get that sometimes where people think it's just an overwhelming thing. But most business people in, in businesses that are running, they know what their payroll is. They know how to negotiate a job salary, an hourly rate. They know how to shop for supplies. They know how to pay their bills. They, can't, they track their expenses. So there's nothing new here to track. There's nothing new here to explore. It's just a matter of knowing how to negotiate things. One thing that often happens with, with entrepreneurs is they don't know how to negotiate a licensing contract, or they've never hired a sales team before, so they don't know how to pay commissions and set goals, or they've never done those things before, which is understandable. It doesn't mean it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not possible to set fair market values. This means you're not exposed to those. Um, so, if, you know, people say, you know, what's the fair market value of an idea? Well, that's what's, what, you, what you could license the idea for. If all I did was come up with an idea, then there could be a licensee out there for it. I used to be the head of marketing in a company that made fishing tackle boxes. And if you had a fishing tackle box idea, I was the guy to see. If I liked your idea, I would give you 2% royalty on revenues. Now, you could get a higher royalty somewhere else, but I could sell a lot more for you than somebody else could. So the fair market value of a fishing tackle box idea in the United States is 2% on royalty on revenues. I can either pay you the royalty and we're even, or I can give you slices in my pie, uh, converting treating them as a bet. So everything's always quantifiable. It's just a matter of figuring out what the quantifiable things are. I've actually written a book about this, this how do you tell how much stuff is worth? Uh, it just came out in May. It's called Will Work for Pie. And it's on Amazon for 99 cents. If you want to pick it up, I haven't had the time to adjust the price yet, but um, talks about how do, you pay, how do you pay advisors? How do you pay for ideas? How do you pay for salespeople? All those kinds of things. So it's, it's a matter of just knowing what you're paying for. So it's usually, it's often a concern like, oh gosh, I got to figure this out, but it's nothing that most people don't know how to track anyway in the regular course of doing business. 
Well, you preempted my next question, which was um, if it is the case that, let's say, someone is in that position of um, the beginning of their company and they are determining who should get what, um, what are the first few steps that you'd recommend? But I would imagine that that would be one of the first few steps is to get that book for under a dollar. Um, have you got yeah. anything to add there? Well, the first thing that every business does besides startups usually is negotiate the job offer, the description of the job, and the amount of money that person will be paid. So you don't, have you ever taken a job with a, real, with a regular company where you didn't know the salary? Um, I probably wouldn't have accepted the job, but I've certainly been disorganized about applying and perhaps negotiating. Right. So most people that have jobs know what they're getting paid. So, um, and in fact, most people just have jobs and they get paid and they don't get any equity at all because they're not taking any risk because they're getting paid. So the first thing to do is say, here's what your job is. Here's the scope and expectations of your job. And here's how much the fair market salary is. And you negotiate that like any other job. And then if you have the cash, you simply pay the salary and there's no equity due. If you can't pay the salary, then you have to pay in what I call a slice, which is like a poker chip, which tracks your bet. You pay in slices instead of with salaries. And at any given time, your bet or your slices divided by all the slices is your percentage of the equity. So you always can translate everything into slices. But the first thing always to do is to determine what the fair market value of the salary is. So like for, if you're a salesperson, I'd go over what the sales plan is with you and what the commission structure is and how you get paid out. And I can pay you cash commission or I can pay you slices in the pie. So you always have that choice. It, in effect, produces a currency for which you can buy anything. I can buy this water bottle, for instance, with slices in my pie instead of cash if I don't have cash. And anybody can bet. Your, you can pay your lawyer in slices. You can pay your landlord in slices. Anyone that, will be willing to, anyone that believes in your company and wants equity can trade their, their, their fair market value of their contribution for slices in your pie and, uh, and always have a piece of equity that equals the exact amount that you get relative to the other participants in their company. Have you paid in slices yourself or have you avoided that? No, well, these days I am fortunate enough that I can just pay all my people. So I mostly retain my equity and I pay people. But certainly throughout my career, uh, I've used slicing pie, and uh, I've also done, done traditional equity splits. I did it about 10 years ago. I, did a, I started a company with a partner and I got completely burned. We had an exit last year, a big exit. And I would have made potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. But because I got essentially screwed by the deal, because I signed the wrong piece of paper, uh, he made out like a bandit and I made nothing. And then, you know, one thing I realized over the years is just because you agreed to something, just because it's legal, just because your lawyers reviewed it and you understood it and you signed it doesn't mean it's fair. Like in blackjack, we had a 50-50 deal. I could sue you and probably win. That doesn't mean it's fair. Mean it's fair. What's fair is that you, met, you, 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 you bet more than me for unforeseen circumstances. We didn't know we were going to get two aces. We didn't know we were going to need more money. We didn't know we were going to need those things. We couldn't predict the future. But because you did place those bets in good faith, I should adjust myself to be fair. It's not in my best interest to screw you because you'll, I'll get a bad reputation and you'll lose your interest in the company and all kinds of things. Um, so, you know, one thing that I've learned over the years is there aren't multiple versions of fairness. It's either fair or it's not fair. If you think something's fair and I think something's fair, one of, or both of us has got to be wrong. So the, the logic of fairness sort of applies to every situation. And indeed, slicing pie has been used all over the world in different languages and different cultures and different economies. And as far as I know, it's always worked. I've never heard of a situation where it hasn't worked. Do you think that your expertise in this area um, come as a result of that deal that you referred to 
where you were shortchanged, if you like? That was sort of the catalyst that made me commit to paper what my feelings were about this concept. And before I started that company, I started a number of different businesses with the slicing pie concept sort of in mind. Um, but before that, you know, I started a company in college where I had partners who wanted to work with me and I, I just couldn't get my head around how to do the equity. When I got to business school, I asked my professors and they would give me answers that were really vague and based on future predictions. I never could find a good answer to this. So I, the next, another company I started, I used a version of slicing pie. It wasn't quite the same thing, but it was based on the contributions people made. And I actually had a guy come and work for two weeks and then just vanish. And then a few months later, he sued me for $8,000 and been unpaid. I didn't have $8,000. No one, you know, we were all out of money. And we went to arbitration for the state of Illinois. And the arbitrator looked at the deal I had with him, which was sort of like slicing pie, and immediately said, this is perfectly fair. And I won the, I won the suit um, because it's, it's, it's based on logic. But that, that experience with, um, with my ex-partner, really wanted me to commit to paper what, what my thoughts were about this. And I originally intended slicing pie to be what kind, of, kind of a hacker's model to getting equity sort of right. But what I realized over time, because we can know the contributions exactly, we can know fairness exactly. And today I promote the model uh, and the logic of the model without any changes. So if people change the model or make tweaks to it, it's no longer fair. Um, so it always works as long as you apply the logic as it's been described. I don't, I don't consider myself the inventor of slicing pie. I consider myself the interpreter or discoverer of slicing pie. And that it's, it's basically based on, on rational logic, just like the blackjack game was. So how did you go about discovering it? Well, I knew that my contributions were unknown. You know, I, I didn't always know what I was getting into with a startup. You know, every startup I went to, you know, I had one startup where I thought we were going to get funding in, in, by February. I said to my wife, we'll, we'll have funding by February. And we did get funding by February, but a year later, February. So it, was, it took a year longer than I thought it would. And I consent, continued to consume my cash and consume my time for no additional equity. And it was frustrating because here I was working harder and harder and harder. And every time I took on a partner, I'd give them shares out of my pocket. And it just didn't seem logical because I didn't know what that person was going to produce. And I, I, I saw people you know, get more equity than they deserved. It was just, it was just, it's always a stressful conversation because you never know what's going to happen. I read a book years ago when I was in high school. It's called uh, uh, No Prisoners. And they were this, it was called the company who started um, uh, a Microsoft front page where it made websites. And they're, they sold for $100 million to Microsoft. But the CEO who came in just months before got a 10% chunk of the equity. He got $10 million. He didn't do anything. He literally did nothing. He came in from like a month later, but they gave him an allocation of 10 million, uh, 10%. Just because he was a CEO, they needed a CEO and he got paid $10 million for doing nothing. So, you know, it's great that he came in and he took the bonus, but he really didn't deserve $10 million. I don't think, you know, he didn't create value just because he showed up. So that, you know, those lessons over the years, I think most entrepreneurs that experience the equity split conversation, experience this angst and then this, this gnawing that something's not right. One of the biggest comments I get from people is, I wish I'd known about this 10 years ago or five years ago before I started my last company, because they, they know that they're getting, they're getting burned. And it's usually the founders themselves, the main founders who wind up getting burned the hardest. Sounds like with your example, that it doesn't just happen in um, smaller companies, but in quite large ones as well. So are you aware of anyone else doing this? Is anyone else doing what? 
talking about this topic? Lots of people talk about this topic. There's lots of people online um, because it's always something people bump into. And there's a lot of companies that do that do um, you know tracking of your equity splits over time. There's software programs out there. The problem with them is that you have to determine your split in advance before you can plug the numbers into this, the calculator. As I'm the only person on the planet that has a calculator that will give you a fair equity split. Everyone else is based on you know guessing about what your assumptions. And there are calculators out there that that say you know what's your job, who had the idea, who has the most experience. You know these these sort of objective responses that lead up to another you know a fixed split. You can be a really good guesser, but you're still going to get it wrong. With slicing pie, you don't have to guess. You just have to observe what that actually happens. Now, once you reach break even or Series A, your split freezes and the shares become valuable. And then you can use a trading by the, the, the share price to trade your shares in the future. So if you want to buy something from me for the cost of 10 bucks, you can just theoretically give me $10 in shares. And there's some problems with that, but in theory, that it would work out that it would work out you do that. Have you got any thoughts on the type of conversation that happens after you put your, should we say, details into the calculator? Because um, I can imagine, um, yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a logical approach to it, which in my opinion is, a, is better than an illogical approach. But at the same time, if there's a social norm, which people are used to, there might be kind of a, um, should we say, pushback on that? Have you given that any thought at all? Yeah, there's basically three reasons why you would push back on the slicing pie model that I've experienced. The first reason is you just don't get it. It's, it's been explained to you. It seems like there might be something fishy or there's some, there's some trick here. Maybe I can game it. Once you dig into the covers and see this, there's really no way to game it. There's no way to get it wrong as long as you negotiate in good faith, fair market values and understand the model. So once you learn it, it'll click for you and it'll, seem, it'll be very logical. Just like in Blackjack, it's very logical. Um, so the first reason is they don't get it. And I always try to teach people the most I can. I do podcasts like this. I do videos and webinars and I wrote, I've written three or four books on this topic. And I, I uh, have videos online and resources. There's even a slicing pie game you can download and play. So I have as many free resources to learn slicing pie as possible. The second reason someone would not want to use this is they're not willing to learn it. They don't want to bother learning something new. I, you know, I've experienced doing this this way. I want my 5% because I'm your advisor. And, and I run across those people from time to time. And I always advise you to steer clear of those people because if you have someone who's not willing to learn new things, they may not be a very good entrepreneur and, and co-founder with you. And the third reason is, which I also come across, is they do understand it, but it's their intention to take advantage of you. And I see that a lot. And with like just like my ex-partner, he did know what he was doing when he wrote that contract. He did realize that he was giving him an unfair advantage, but it was his intention to take advantage of us. And that's what makes him a bad person. That's what makes people kind of not nice people. Now, in a traditional split, we feel like whatever we negotiate is what we get. So it's perfect. So it's, you know, I'm justified in doing this because Mike signed it and agreed to it and his lawyer looked at it. Just because you get it again, just because you agreed to it doesn't make it fair. But if I understand how slicing pie works and I still don't want to use it, that means it's my intention to take advantage of you. And sometimes entrepreneurs are desperate and they want to raise money and they don't see any other options. So they're willing to be taken advantage of. So you always want to go, go, go carefully, you know, with people like that. You know, sometimes there's a, there's a Hail Mary approach where I got you know, I got to, I got to do this in order to survive. But what I tell people is if you have a good investment opportunity, you'll find other investors. You don't have to take a bad investment. Um, and that's one thing that especially early entrepreneurs don't really get is they think that this, this, they only have one shot, but good investments attract good investors. Interesting.
You've mentioned um, litigation a couple of times. Um, what advice would you give someone who, let's say, they are in the position where they've given away too much um, and they use the calculator, for example, or read the book, and um, let's say they have gotten a bad deal. Is it too late by the time they've sold all the, uh, signed all of the contracts? No. Um, I, most people who use Slicing Pie, as in my experience, have already done a fixed equity split and they want to unwind it. And there's a chapter in my book, The Slicing Pie Handbook, and you can also access a chapter online on my blog and a spreadsheet, which is called the Retrofit Spreadsheet, which basically takes you back in time to go over your contributions, what you put in, what you've taken out, and it'll give you a starting number of slices. Usually, when someone's faced with that information and it's done properly, they can see that they have too much. And in most cases that I've experienced, that person says, oh, let's, let's make the adjustment. It's not in your best interest to have too much because you're taking advantage of your partners and you're, they're going to lose motivation working with you as long as it once, once it's exposed. If you have someone, however, who sees the reality and the logic of slicing pie, they do get it, but they don't want to budge in their equity split. All they really have is a legal right to be a dick. And if they are that kind of person, then they'll enforce that legal right and they'll take advantage of you. But even then, there are ways of unwinding it. You can you can push that person out, for instance, and then switch to slicing pie model and dilute them appropriately using this logic. And if you just dilute people randomly by adding more shares to your, to your, your ownership just to, to, to artificially dilute someone, that may not be fair. But using slicing pie reflects fairness and will, um, will dilute them fairly. So if you are ever faced with a lawsuit or arbitration and you could present to them a logical way to, that you diluted shares, most people would I think be willing to accept it. I haven't seen this tested very much because it hasn't gotten that far because um, it usually works, but uh, you can certainly unwind an unfair split. You might have some legal problems if the person's a jerk, but most people aren't jerks. They want to do what's right. Great. I'm, I'm very interested to go away and have a look at the calculator. So um, thanks for sharing. Uh, it, you mentioned that um, you teach entrepreneurship, um, but also you are an entrepreneur because you're in multiple businesses. Um, is there anything which I guess you've learned from experience in your businesses that you particularly like to share with students? Yeah. One thing that I've learned over the years is that you want to do marketing for your product first before you produce your product. And what I see so many entrepreneurs do, even my consulting, is they go out and they produce their product first, and then they go out and try to sell it. And it seems strange to most of them, like, how would I market the product if I didn't have it? Um, but the 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 way you market a product before you have it is to see if you can attract the audience that's interested in the product. So slicing pie is a good example. I wanted to create a calculator that did this for you, but I knew that I had to find people that were interested in it first. So the first thing I did is create a basic blog on the concept. Then I created a white paper on it. And then I created a spreadsheet for it. And then I created a book on the topic. And then I created a more elaborate spreadsheet and a retrofit spreadsheet. I created the content first. And then I was getting the, 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 I was attracting the audience for it. So when I built my software three or four years later, there was a built-in audience for it. And that's the most successful I've been with this kind of thing. You want to sell your product. You want to make sure that you can attract the market first before you build your product. And that's a big, big mistake I see a lot of companies make. I, I, saw, I see it constantly. People spend you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars creating their app or their software, and they get out to the market and nobody wants it. And it's a real heartbreaker. So I always tell people, you know, try to build a blog about that topic to see if you can attract the market first or provide some kind of content or some kind of tools 
that are really basic that can help you attract the market. Because if you can't attract the market, there's no business. Well, I'm interested to know whether you've um, you've implemented that yourself, and also um, whether the the startup split um, the book is that as a result of um, you know doing a a business where you're consulting or to some degree is that something that you do? Yeah, these days I try to do the marketing first. Like my my camping gear company is a is a product for Boy Scouts of America. We're the one of the largest suppliers to them. And the main product is a pop-up mosquito net tent. And I knew how to get to the market. I knew my son was a Boy Scout and I knew the Boy Scout leadership. And I, I was a Boy Scout leader. So I knew the people at the, at the local shop. So I knew that I could get to the market. So I created a basic prototype. And I told the guy at the shop in town, I said, take 20 of these things. If they don't sell, I'll buy them back. So I removed the risk for them. And he sold 250 that year. So I knew I could get to the market. I knew that that was a possibility. So then I could invest in more development for the product. Um, but you always want to, I, in my experience, invest in the marketing first because you, otherwise you just don't know if you have something. We also, my son and I over COVID developed a set of lacrosse uh, targets for, for lacrosse players. We did it because it was fun and we were playing lacrosse together, but I didn't assess the market first and it sold horribly because I didn't, I don't know how to reach that market in, in, in mass for, for product that's that, that low cost. So uh, I don't know the cross people. I don't know the, the, the players and the buyers. And I just don't know who they are. So I've been not much less successful with that product. Well, um, I'll reiterate, you certainly seem busy. Um, and writer's block doesn't seem to be an issue uh, for you. Eight books, any, anything that you would share on, uh, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong about that, but anything that you would share on the concept of being able to write eight books? Well, I, I've actually lost count of how many books I have. I think it's more than that now. I just released The Will to Work for Pi, and I have uh, two more books or three more books coming out soon. One is about lacrosse, and I actually have a, I know how to get to that channel now, but not, not for the product, for the book. Um, but, you know, writing a book is, seems like a big deal when you first consider it, but once you have an interest in a, in a topic, it turns into not be that big of a deal. There's a guy that I met a few years ago. I've written, like I say, eight, eight, eight nine, maybe 10 books, and they've been translated into about 10 different languages. I consider myself sort of an expert at writing books now. But there's a guy that I met at George Washington University who uh, teaches a book writing course for first-time authors. And 95% of the people who take his class come, up with, come out with a book a year later. So he's got extreme, extremely high res results on getting that book out of your head and onto paper. And it's edited and formatted and, and paid for. Um, and that course is actually free. And I actually went through it to write my, my latest book. And it was a wonderful way to kind of take yourself through the process. If you're someone who's not a self-starter or has a hard time keeping on track, that course like that is a wonderful way to do it. And if anybody wants to know more about it, I'd be happy to share that, the details with them. Um, but I, for me, I just sit down and write. And I, I, I format my book pages on Word to be the size that I want so I can see how many pages I'm creating. And I create the cover first so I can kind of, kind of get inspired. There's a few tricks I use to kind of keep myself motivated. Um, but it is, you know, so one thing, writing is one thing I really enjoy. Uh, and I, I find it's a good way to, to drum up a market. I'm not very good at writing short things, so I write long things. Well, yeah, not, not so difficult if you enjoy it, right? So um... yeah. But um, there, there are some people who I've spoken to previously uh, on the topic of, for example, productivity. 
Um, and I'd particularly like to ask you about it because you appear to be so productive. So have you got any thoughts on this particular area? Productive for me or for, uh, for teams? A general principle that you use that other people could apply. Well, that's a good question. I, 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 I don't, people think that I'm really productive. Like you're, you're observing my productivity. I don't think I'm as productive as I'd like to be. Um, you know, I say, I, I, I go through days, some days are not productive at all. I think that one thing I, I do well is I pick things and I'm lucky enough in my career that I've been successful enough. I can pick things I really like now. So I concentrate on things I really enjoy and I concentrate on things that uh, I can see the future and I can see the, see the final outcome. So I mentioned the lacrosse book before. I, I, could, I can envision how that book's going to look and what it's going to feel like when it's done. And so I start creating the final some the things that show me what it's going to look like. And so I told you before I looked at the market. So I've already started exploring the market and going down that path and working with partners. As I write the book, I start bringing it together and show more and more of it. So as I can see momentum gaining on that project, I get more and more committed to it. If I work on projects that don't seem to get some momentum, I bail out fairly quickly. So I started writing a book about the cotton candy business. And this might seem random, but it was actually based on some research that I did. And I started writing the book and I started finding some partners and I started exploring the market and it kind of lost its steam. So I like the topic, but I'm backing off because I don't see myself as being able to connect to the market as well. Um, so once I see that I can connect with the market, I know there's demand for it. It makes it much more interesting because I know I'm going to get a payout. Payout is going to be worth it. Sounds a lot like testing. So you're sort Definitely of testing, testing various different industries. Informal uh, testing, but you know, informal testing is good too. Um, but you know, you really got to make sure that the market gives me momentum. That's something I've learned over the years to not concentrate on a project that wastes my time. Now I waste lots of time chasing my tail, but um, I do enough enough hits that I uh, can be successful and make a living. Is the um, the exit that you referred to previously is that the only exit that you've had, or have you had others? No, I've sold other companies before. Um, I, have you got I, anything I, to to note on that particular topic? Uh, nothing, nothing people would have heard of. I sold a business out of college uh, to a to a competitor. Um, I was part of a transaction a few years ago to International Truck and Engine Corporation, Navistar. We sold a, a, a chassis building company. Um, so I've had, some, I've had some exits, more failures than exits, but usually the exits are nice enough that I can, uh, I can be happy with them. You know, what I tell my students is, as much as we all like hitting home runs and we love our billionaires in this world, if you can make a living as an entrepreneur, that that is that meets or exceeds what you can make somewhere else, then you're then you're a successful entrepreneur. You know, so being an entrepreneur is about making a living, not about hitting home runs all the time. So, uh, I've had some nice exits, but mostly I, think I I consider myself someone who's made a nice living as an entrepreneur. So the question um, and my my fault for not being clear um, was about like say if for example if someone else was um, attempting an exit, uh, what are some advice that you would give that person? Um, as a general principle. But um, would you say that you are a successful entrepreneur based on your definition? Definitely uh, successful. And as far as exiting, I'm someone who, when I get an exit offer, I go for it um, because I like to move on to other things. I'm not, a, I'm not someone who likes to grow a company for 25 years. or I don't see myself as that kind of person. So I go for the exit as much as I can. 
And don't underestimate how much you can squeeze value out of things. The exits that I've made, I, in my opinions, we've sold them probably for more money than we should have. I uh, have a friend who sold a business a few years ago, and he sold it to a big competitor. And they went into the meeting, and he was hoping to get $15,000, $15 million. That's what he was hoping to get. And before he could open his mouth, the buyer took out a whiteboard and explained why he, the buyer thought they were only worth $150 million. So he didn't open his mouth. He got 10 times what he thought he was going to get to the company and they thought they were getting a bargain. So don't go in to see any too many preconceptions, you know, let the buyer, you know, make some offers and, and, uh, and kind of go from there because when you get to some big money, people kind of get done with it. And a good one, good exit can set you, set you up for a long time, give you plenty of runway to start other companies and do other things. It may not set you up for life, but it'd give you some nice runway, which is it's always nice to have a little, uh, money in the bank when you're an entrepreneur. Definitely. What, how did you get into your first business? My first business, I was not doing very well in college. My parents told me they weren't going to pay for it anymore. I should come home and get a job. And I didn't want to do that. So I started making t-shirts for sororities at college. And uh, I grew that business. Uh, I created a catalog and I was kind of doing it on a national basis and on sales people all over the place. And I put myself through college and graduate school. Um, this is in the mid nineties. And uh, I sold that to a competitor after I, I graduated from graduate school. Uh, so that was a really interesting experience. I paid for all my college. And I remember at the time thinking that if I had $2,500 in the bank, I could pay for a semester's tuition at University of Kansas and room and board. I was paying 135 bucks a month for rent plus food. That was all I needed for a semester. So if I could save that, I would have four to five months of runway to do anything else. So I always concentrate on putting that stuff in, that money in the bank and, uh, and then not worrying about it so much. And businesses go in uh, you know, ups and downs and ups and downs. So having that set aside gave me the, the safety net that I needed to, to, to take risks. Uh, all too often I see people you know, go all in on businesses and it's a big mistake, I think. A few years ago, right after I got married, I recently, right after I got married, when I got married, I was, I'd sold my business. I invested in the stock market. I had a nice job. And then I quit my job, started graduate school, took on student debt, lost my job, had a baby, bought a house and started a business. And I lost all of my money in the business, all of it. So as you can imagine, my wife was in a pretty precarious position, having married a guy she thought was successful and having yeah, all the burdens, all these, all these uh, expenses. But I joined a new company, and in less than a year, I made all my money back. So being able to ride out those ups and downs emotionally and stay with your head in the game is a big part of being an entrepreneur. Um, but I don't let that happen anymore. I don't go down to zero anymore. I, I put my money away, and I try to save it so I have plenty. You know, the more years of runaway I can get in me, the more comfortable my whole family life is. Well, I'm glad that I got to uh, talk to you about equity splits, but at the same time, I do kind of want to do a whole new episode on what your story is, because I'm sure there's some, some more um, interesting sort of learnings we could get from that. But, um, Lots of bruises. Yeah, exactly. And um, don't you learn the best from the bruises than you do from the victories, yeah. right? Yeah, so um, I've learned a lot of lessons. What are your goals? 
Well, I, I, I like to make slicing pie the de facto standard for equity splits in the, on the planet. Uh, you know, these days, most places I go, people have at least heard of slicing pie, which is nice. But they still have questions about it. They still are skeptical of that it could be what it, deliver what it delivers. And it breaks my heart to see people going to fix splits. And I see it all over Reddit and all over Quora and people asking about, you know, how to get all these equity deals. So my, my goal in the next five, 10 years is to make this the standard. Um, and of course, to sell books and sell software. But I, I really want people to, to get what they deserve. And we live in a culture where the money takes advantage of people without the money. And it's so common, we think it's normal, we think it's fair, but it's not always fair. Um, there's lots of things people have to offer all over the world that, isn't, that aren't financial. We have relationships and ideas and things that can be accounted for if we just knew how to account for them. So I want people to, to get exposed to slicing pie and see the logic of how it works and say, this is a logical way to approach this problem. This is a, and everything else is illogical. This is an area of business that's just plain wrong for most people. So I want people to correct this because, because it's a correctable problem that, that can be solved with, with a little bit of math that's not too, uh, too outrageous. I don't know why, but something just popped into my head, which I have to ask you about based on this. And it is um, when you watch a program like Shark Tank, if you ever do, how do you feel about those types of deals that go down? Well, there's two reasons I don't like Shark Tank. The first reason is the deals are insane. They're just, they're just off the cuff, royalties on revenues, and it just, they're stupid deals. And they're good examples of people that have funds thinking they know the answers. And some of them do these, you know, no, no, I, just, I cringe when I see it because there's desperation sometimes in the, in the, uh, the, the founder's line, uh, pitch, and they, they take these deals that are just ridiculous. The second reason I don't watch it very much is one of the other things I do is I, I do presentation skills coaching and uh, I cringe sometimes watching the, the Shark Tank. Shark Tanks are, pr are pretty good presentations, but the other kinds of Shark Tankish things, the presentations are so boring, I get, I get, uh, I get too bored with them. So, um, but I, some of the deals are just, are just horrible. So I don't, I don't watch Shark Tank very often. And I wouldn't be a good contestant on Shark Tank too, because I could, I could, I could call, their, call their logic too easily, I think. Yeah, they don't like that very much. Like but, um, is there anything that you'd like to add, which I haven't asked you about regarding equity splits? Well, there, there's, we talked a lot about allocation of equity, how to get using this betting concept to make sure that the allocation is fair. But one of the biggest friction points in equity splits is what happens when someone leaves the business. And there are four reasons why someone can leave a business. They can be fired for cause, which means they weren't doing their job. They can be fired for no cause, meaning you just fired them out of the blue. They can resign for cause, meaning you changed the deal on them so they had a good reason to resign. Or they can resign for no cause, meaning they just up and quit one day. And those are different circumstances. and They deserve different treatment. If you're a solo entrepreneur and you don't do your job, what happens to your business? Depends on the systems, I would say. But, um... you, just go, you lose it all, right? If you don't do your job, and as a sole entrepreneur, you lose everything, unless you had it automated. But most people are starting a company. If they, if they quit before the, before the automation is created, before the business is created, they, they lose their entire investment. They wear all the hats, yeah. Yeah. So if you're a solo entrepreneur and you walk away, you lose, just like a partner should. If you walk away or get fired, you should lose your equity split. Yeah, it's not fair to just kind of half-heart it and then expect everyone else to pay you later. And uh, so the logic of fairness says that if someone walks away or gets fired for reason, 
they should lose their equity. On the flip side, if they resign for good reason or they're fired for no good reason, their bet should stay on the table because it's not fair for me to push you out and take your value that you created. So on the way out the door, there's logic in slicing pie that explains how to make sure it stays fair. And there's all too much, there's a lot of friction there. And uh, so keep in mind that slicing pie is about allocating equity fairly and recovering equity fairly uh, when the time comes. Good stuff, Mike. Thank you very much for all of the value today. Where is the best place for people to find you? Uh, Slicingpie.com is the domain name that has all this content. Uh, Of course, MikeMoyer.com has more information about me. And you can reach me at Mike at SlicingPie.com. And I usually respond to my emails as quick as I can. But uh, depending on your question, I'm always happy to, to help people as much as I can. Thank you very much for being a great guest. Thank you. I appreciate it.